welcome to the Huntback Country podcast. This is episode number 254. Our guest is one of you, a listener. And we talk with Jesse, our guest today, about his recent elk hunting experience this past archery season. It was Jesse's second elk season, as you'll hear about, and he was able to fill his first tag and kill his first bull. So we dive into the prior year and his first year of elk hunting and the things he learned in that experience and then how that helped him achieve success this year. And it's a pretty wild story on how things went down this year. You know, it is one of those things on this podcast where we don't want to make this show about us. We don't want to make this show about companies or hunting, quote unquote, celebrities. We love talking with guests of all types, including industry folks and experts, but we love hearing from regular guys like Jesse and like you. If you have anything for us, whether it's a hunting story or questions for a future episode, you can always contact us directly by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you're enjoying the show, we would love to see a review from you. If you could leave that in iTunes or wherever else you might be listening to this, or maybe share the show directly with a friend, that would help us tremendously. We appreciate the continued support and hope you enjoy this conversation with our guest, Jesse. Well, Jesse, welcome to the Huntback Country Podcast, man. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. Glad, glad to be on. Yeah, it's uh, one of the one of my favorite things about this podcast is just kind of hearing from regular guys, doing listener stories, that type of thing. I mean, I say it a lot. Like, I love talking to the quote unquote experts out there, but uh, I love connecting with guys like yourself who are just out there trying to get it done. And uh, that's what we're talking about today is. Uh, a story from this elk season, this past archery elk season, uh, which we'll get into. But just first to give listeners some uh, some context on who you are, man, just give us some introduction, background on who you are, where you're from, that type of deal. Yeah, so uh, I'm from southeastern Pennsylvania, born and raised here, never really left the area. Um, started deer hunting when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old. Uh, my grandfather got me into it the first season, did the whole uh, hunter safety course with me and everything, and um, got me out in the woods, was fortunate enough to take two doe in one of my first times out in the woods. And uh, since then, I've basically been a solo hunter since that first season. Um, you know, I'd get, my dad would get me set up or whatever. He wasn't a hunter at the time and uh was fortunate enough to take deer almost every year um mainly switched to archery back in uh man i don't even know i was probably 16 years old something like that and uh been mainly archery hunting for the past 20 years in the the woods around around me mainly small plots uh farmland stuff like that and kind of always had in the back of my head of I didn't want to do public land because I didn't want to deal with other hunters. The, the hunting probably wasn't going to be as good, that type of stuff. Um, so I kind of always limited myself to these really small whitetail plots, um, anywhere from two to 10 acres. I had a couple bigger places I hunted, but mostly those small places. And uh, about two years ago, 
three years ago now, I guess, me, my dad, and one of his friends bought a cabin on state land um, in like northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, so it's on state forest, but we own this structure on a small lease part of the property, but it's in the middle of the state forest. So you can walk out the door and walk in any which direction and hunt. And that kind of got me introduced into more big woods type hunting. And from there I was hooked and that kind of led me into being interested in, in hunting elk um, out West and kind of just dove in, you know, not knowing what to expect, started doing research online and that's how I came across you guys and um, watching some YouTube videos and stuff. I knew that's what I wanted wanted to do. Um, that's cool. I, I kind of had in mind that I wanted it to be a backpack hunt um, just cause I had done a little bit of backpacking for the last eight or 10 years. Um, my dad actually threw hiked the Appalachian trail back in 2007. Um, so I had learned some stuff from him, uh, especially like the, the lightweight end of things. Cause he was definitely a minimalist ultra light cooked with a little soda can alcohol stove type deal. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I kind of, you know, I think I, I think one of my first steps in the researching Western hunting was literally a Google search backcountry elk hunt. And I think the first thing that came up was a born and raised video. And I just played it, you know, and I was like, wow, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and that, I mean, it, the rest is history, I guess. That's where it yeah. all started. That's cool. So we're talking here, it's uh, 2020, and we'll talk about your hunt from this year, but the year prior, 2019, that was your first elk hunt, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last year was my first. Um, was that solo as well? No. Last year, I had a friend go out with me. Um, okay. We both, so I don't, I don't have too many friends that, I don't have, he's the only friend that I have that archery hunts, and then other friends that I have that hunt kind of are more, um, you know, waterfowl upland, you know, some of them deer hunt, but kind of mm -hmm. like the traditional Northeastern style deer hunters, you know, go out on the opening day for a couple hours, go back, have a couple beers, go back out the evening, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just, I never really, my hunting style never really uh, met up with, with anybody else's, but anyway, me and my one friend who lives in Maryland, um, we got on board together with research and everything and planning. And yeah, he went out with me last year. Um, we drove out right around the middle of, of the, the season. So I think we got out there like the 16th of September. Um, again, this is 2019, uh, in Colorado hunting over the counter, um, you know, grabbed our tags when we got out there and, um, we spent, I believe it was 14 days in the woods in wow. maybe five or six different areas. And I saw, I saw a cow the first day, then maybe eight days later, I saw a spike. And then on my second last day, I saw a spike. Those were the only elk encounters. We in like had. two weeks in two weeks of hard hunting. I, I put on like, 
think it was 98 miles or something, according to my iPhone health data. Yeah. Um, boots, you know, covering ground. Yeah. That's, that's the only, only elk encounters we had and um, only heard a few bugles um, in, in two weeks. So, wow. Was that, <laughs> did you focus on, was that like wilderness, just general national forest, BLM? Like yes. what type of land were you covering? So this was all national forest. Um, okay. we, that's a, I mean, for that time of year, that second half of September, that's a lot of ground to cover and not even be hearing bugles. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was rough. Um, I mean, it was definitely very discouraging. I mean, I, it was an awesome experience and I going into it, I didn't have, you know, high expectations of actually harvesting, but I had expectations of having encounters. Um, so it was, you know, it was definitely a daily grind. And um, other than that, the, the trip went, everything went accordingly. You know, there were no, no complications, issues, um, you know, gear, everything was dialed in. Um, it was just, we could not get into elk. So and, with you, sorry, not to cut you off with you, not getting, let's call it the full experience of like, a close encounter or the rush of like hearing bugles, whether it's close or far or whatever. Like I think a, a lot of guys can go out and on their first hunt, they don't feel a tag. Um, and as you said, having real spe realistic expectations about that is great. But like you go out on your first hunt and you experience elk in some form or fashion, you see them, you hear them, you have some sort of encounter that really connects with you. And you're like, Oh yeah. You know, like this. Yeah. I want to keep doing this. It sounds like for that first trip, you spent a couple of weeks, didn't have too many encounters. Or did you still have that like drive and that passion to want to continue to do it? Were you questioning your sanity? Like, what was that feeling like? Oh, I was definitely questioning my sanity, but my drive was just determination to figure this out. I mean, every year people go out there and kill elk. Um, yeah, the success rates are low, but at the same time, Colorado has the most elk out of any other state. So there's no reason that I can't figure this out and at least get into elk. And then from there, you know, if I blow it, screw up, then that's on me. But mm -hmm. I was determined to at least figure out how to find the elk. Um, and so that that whole trip, we we barely even found any we didn't find any fresh sign. I think I found one fresh pile of scat in, in all those miles. Um, but we got into a lot of what I was determining to be maybe one to two week old sign in one area that we hit. And, uh, we ended up setting up a base camp there for like three days, I guess. And, um, kind of just going, around like a radius hitting different ridges and stuff from that base camp all within maybe five miles uh you know straight line of sight back to camp but that whole area was just covered with what i thought to be pre-rut sign mm. um, so going into it this year i had that in the back of my head you know what if i was reading that sign right the animals should be in there the beginning of the season and uh, that's kind of what, wh where my starting point was this year. Okay. No, that's, that's a great point. So 
just a recap of guys that fully piece that together. When you were in there last year, you're seeing sign, but it's older. Some guys would just say, well, they're here at some point, but you know, I'm spending so much time here. I'm not getting into elk. This area is terrible, right? You're making the more informed decision to say, no, they're here at some point. They're sign. It's old. Here I am in the, you know, call it the mid to late September. The sign looks like it's one or two weeks old they're here earlier in the month. So now you just said this year, if you're coming back earlier, don't give up on that spot. Even though it was bad last year at a different time, it could be good this year at the proper time um, versus just giving up on that area altogether. Yeah. And that's, that's what my hopes were. I mean, the, the whole area, for one thing, it's a gorgeous place to be as is most of Colorado, but um, it just, I mean, it looked like the perfect elk habitat, not to mention there were, literally it was almost like hiking trails the uh the elk paths were so well worn in some areas and it was just littered with with rubs and older scat and uh so yeah i definitely put that in the memory bank to to think about for for a later time and you know i i didn't know if i was reading it right and i know elk can be here one day i'm 15 miles away the next day and you know it doesn't necessarily mean that at that point next year they're going to be back in that same area but yeah i definitely had had put that kept that in mind for for this year yeah cool um but yeah as far as other than that man last year it was it was a bust as far as animals goes um i did end up stopping in at a cpw office and talking to a guy there that was extremely helpful and at first he kind of you know, wanted to give me the generic info, I guess, that they give most people that stop in. But the more I talked to him, the more uh, sincere, I guess, he he saw what I was. And he was like, you know what, come back here. And we sat in his, like, mapping room, this big conference table, and he laid out all these maps and started bouncing ideas around. And um, I ended up going into this, what he called the elk wallow. And... Uh, <laughs> I misread the map like an idiot got in there about a, a half a mile away from where I was supposed to be, um, you know, pre pre light, hiked in, in the dark through all this oak brush and stuff. And about two hours after the sun's up, I'm like, there's no way this is where this guy was talking about. It was basically just like a dried up, you know, you could tell it was wet a couple times out of the year, but it was just a dried up dirt hole. And uh, so I'm looking at the map. I'm like, yeah, I'm a half a mile away from where I'm supposed to be. So I decided to relocate to that spot to sit there for the evening. And this this was the first stationary hunt that during my whole two weeks, I was like, at this point, I just wanted to put some meat in the truck and head home, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was ready to to take a cow or anything that came in. And um, so anyway, I start relocating to where I was supposed to be and coming down to where the elk wallow in quotes is. And there's a guy there carrying a pack out and here he had shot a five point in there that morning at the spot that I was supposed to be sitting at that morning. So wow. it's a, probably a good thing I didn't make it in there because we would have been both hunting this tiny water hole together. But, um, so I at least got to see an elk, you know, up close and personal, uh, helped him, him butcher it and, or quarter it and take it out. Um, 
so that was cool. Got some hands-on experience there. And then I ended up sitting in that, at that hole that evening and had a spike at like 15 yards for 20 minutes. Um, so that was a cool experience too, but yeah, other than that, not really any legitimate elk encounters last year. Yeah. Um, so this year, uh, my, my friend that went last year wasn't able to join me. So I just planned it solo. Um, you know, I wasn't letting that stop me. Yeah. I wish there was somebody else going out with me, especially to, you know, share the travel and everything. But, um, yeah, that's like a legit two day drive, um, from where you're at. Right. Yeah. It's like two full days. So to the hunting, the hunting area where, like the, the center of where we were hunting. Um, it's about a 28 hour drive from my house. So last year we drove straight through, um, Jeez. cause we had two, two people. I folded up the seat in the back of my truck and we, you know, somebody got tired, just climbed back there and yeah. sleep for a little bit. But, uh, yeah, this year I split it up in the, in the two days I stopped about halfway out i think i drove like 18 hours and then stopped at a rest stop slept for like four hours and then finished the the trip out but yeah 28 hours uh from my house <laughs> it's all yeah so uh but yeah th this year my intentions were kind of going off of that that sign that i saw last year that was about a week or two old um i wanted to be out for the beginning of the season. Um, but I also, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm very, I, I didn't have too much confidence in getting this, this whole thing done, you know, um, not, not getting out there, but actually sealing the deal. So I wanted to give myself as much time out of the season to be out there as possible. At first I was thinking about going the whole month of September, but I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I can't leave my wife and my three kids. Uh, I have three daughters, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. Wow. Like, I can't just bail on the whole family and work and everything for a whole month. Yeah. Uh, so, I, uh, my intentions were to go out for the first eight days of the season, fly home, leave my truck in Denver, um, be home for a week to get caught up on, on work and, you know, spend time with the family and everything and then fly back out, get in my truck and go hunt the last two weeks of the season. Mm. So that was the intentions, um, had the, the flight booked and everything. And, uh, well, before I step back a minute, before I actually, you know, before hunting season, um, I came across a post on rock slide, uh, in just the general discussions, somebody looking for a elk hunting partner partner for OTC Colorado. So he gave a whole description of, of himself, what his objectives were, what his hunting style was and everything. I was like, man, if I didn't know better, I think I wrote this. And, you know, at that point, like I said, I was planning on hunting solo, um, never thought about reaching out to some random person, you know, to, to partner up. But once I read his post, you know, I reached out to him and kind of told him about myself, what my plans were at that point, I already had that mid season flight booked and everything. And, um, he, he informed me that he was going to be going out to, 
I think it was the 17th through the end of the season, which was perfect because that's when my I was going to be landing in Denver in this, on the 17th. So we planned to hunt together the, the second half of the season. And um, that never came about. But, uh, yeah, so I, I drew about the, the 30th of September um, and was in unit like a day and a half before the opener. I know I'm Did skipping you, around there. I'm just talking as stuff comes. Along. No, no, you're good, man. It would, uh, we've heard from so many guys in the past. I'm like, how do you find a hunting partner? Blah, 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 blah. And you know, there's been questions about meeting up with guys online. We need to, we need to get some stories from guys who've done that. I almost, you know, I'm glad for you as we'll hear in the story, you didn't have to do that, but it would be fun to like hear how that would have went for you guys. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah, let's dive into the story of the hunts, um, you know, from, okay, so we talked about last year, not being a great experience in terms of elk activity or elk encounters, but like we said, you interpreted that sign, you had some hope that earlier in the season, they would be there. I just want to highlight too, I mean, we've mentioned this um, in the past, but you know, you could say in 2019, well, I didn't have a great hunt. I'm out there for two weeks, didn't see much, didn't hear much, et cetera. Maybe I should try a different area there's something to be said for sticking with an area. Um, and by area, I don't mean go to this exact same spot at the exact same time and do the exact same thing. Like you have to move, you have to find fresh sign, all of that, but learning a unit, for example, like if you're going to hunt Colorado, say multiple years, should you bounce around in three different years and go to three different units? Maybe. Or should you stick with an area and like truly learn how the elk use that area? So um, just want to point that out for guys listening who are planning hunts and things like that. But yeah, for you, you're, you're going back to the same area, totally different time of year. Um, before we dive into the beginning of the hunt itself, was there anything else that you like call it stuff you learned from 2019, not necessarily on the locating elk or what have you, like we've hit that, but gear strategy tactics anything going into this year that you just flat out did or wanted to do different um than last year uh i think the biggest thing that i knew that i wasn't going to do again is the base camp um in an area that we that wasn't proven to be holding elk um Mm -hmm. Like I said, we did that base camp for three days last year. And even though the area was covered with older sign and I'm, gl- I'm in, in hindsight, I'm actually glad that we stayed because I learned that area pretty well. And it gave me something to go off of this year, although I never made it even back that far this year. But um, I kind of I knew that I wasn't going to do that again, It'd be tied down um to an, one certain area for that amount of time. Um, so were you setting up then like base camp at the truck or were you just moving more mobile with camp on your back? Was so the plan was. So my plan this year and going back to um, my hunting partner, my online hunting partner that I never met, um, <laughs> we did quite a bit of e-scouting together, um, you know, bouncing ideas off of each other, uh, you know, coming up with, what we both thought were good areas and everything. And I mean, we had tons of, of waypoints marked on Onyx um, that we had looked at both on Google Earth, on Onyx, um, figured out good access points and um, 
all that. And uh, so I had a lot of areas that I was going to potentially hit. And my intentions this year was to go in for with three days worth of food, camp on my back to the area that I saw that sign at last year, rule that area out. And then I was going to either do day trips in day hunts going to and from the truck in one day or take maybe one day worth of food in and uh, just really as light of a pack as I could um, and just go down the list from one spot to the next until I found fresh sign. And then I would reevaluate and determine, do I want to go in for two, three, four days? Um, But I kind of knew I wasn't going to go in anywhere with more than four days worth of food. Got it. I like it. And you said you were out there day, day and a half, four season. Were you actually packing in like and kind of getting a feel for things or did you just hang at the truck? What was that? How did you spend that extra day? I got there um, the evening. I guess it would have been um, sun Monday evening, uh, probably maybe two, three hours before dark. And I didn't, I didn't park. I parked on the opposite side of this big national forest area. That's essentially a big roadless area. Um, I parked on the opposite side from where I was at last year. It was just a little bit more of a direct access into the area where I saw a lot of the sign last year. And um, there were maybe five, six other hunters there uh, set up when I when I got there. A couple wall tents, a couple guys with just tents right by their truck. And then a couple trucks that you could tell these guys already backpacked in somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. But you knew they were all archery hunters because they all had targets sitting by their truck. Um, which that's something that I should mention, uh, anybody who goes out there from sea level or even probably a couple thousand feet up to, I think where I parked that night was right around 10,000 feet. Do yourself a favor and take a target along and shoot your broadheads at that elevation because I actually had to switch sight tapes to, I think like three sight tapes up faster arrow speed from what I had on there. Um, my first shot, like an idiot, I stand by my truck and I, I have my target at like 76 yards and I shoot that all day long, pull back, sent the first arrow right over the target and spent 45 <laughs> minutes looking for my arrow. But um, it was a major impact difference, which I didn't have that last year. I mean, I changed my setup a bit from last year, but, Last year, I was hitting within a cup, like maybe two inches. This year, it was like a, probably a, I don't know, at 75 yards, it was an eight-inch difference or more. Wow. Um, so that's that's one valuable lesson that I took away from that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that evening, I ended up screwing around with my bow until dark, and um, it started raining. Uh I was going to pitch a tent there. I ended up just sleeping in the back of my truck. Um, figured I'd keep my gear dry for one more day if I could. And um, got up really early, maybe, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half before before uh, light. And it, it, there was actually an inch of snow on the ground. 
and everything was frozen. All the puddles and stuff from the rain were frozen solid. So it must have got down in, I'm guessing, in the mid-20s that night. But uh, just started hiking before light uh, in the general direction of where I knew I wanted to go. And um, just taking my time, you know, looking for sign and uh, found some moose sign, but no elk sign. And uh, I think I only covered maybe six or seven miles that day. I was just kind of taking my time, you know, really trying to trying to figure out where I wanted to be the next day. And um, it wasn't until like the last hour or two of daylight that I started really getting into fresh elk sign. And I wasn't, you know, from last year with having limited encounters and basically seeing no sign, like I wasn't sure if I would recognize the fresh elk, elk sign when I came across it. But as soon as I got into it, I was like, yeah, I feel like I'm literally following these things. Like they must've been here 20 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it was just, there was sign everywhere. It was littered with it. And it was on a ridge that I had hit last year, basically the most distant area that I had hiked to from our base camp last year is where I started getting in all this fresh sign And, um, I didn't jump any elk, which I kind of was expecting to because of how fresh this sign was. Um, but I kind of just looped around this, this ridge, um, and everywhere I went, there was fresh scat everywhere and tracks. And there were a bunch of wallows, which I knew were there from last year. Um, but none of them had been hit. Like it didn't seem for a couple days. And I don't know if it was because it was so cold or what, but, uh, you know, that almost had me second guessing, like, you know, is this just a cow area or what? Um, Cause these wallows aren't hit, but you know, it, it was at that point, we're like an hour away from dark and I figured I'm just going to set up camp somewhere around here. And I debated whether I should hike down into the bottom and camp, but I didn't want to, you know, trying to think about what the thermals are going to do and where the elk are going to feed and everything. I thought it might be better if I just stay up top, um, which I did. I basically, I was maybe 50 feet below um, the peak of this ridge and uh, made camp there and woke up in the morning to bugling bulls all around me. (laughs) Nice. So it's always uh, a good feeling. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, it was like surreal. I, I almost thought, honestly, the first thing I thought, and we're talking, it's an hour before light and I wake up and hear one and it, it couldn't have been more than 200 yards from me. And my first thought is you've got to be freaking kidding me. Somebody actually hiked up here an hour before light <laughs> and they're already trying to locate with bugles. Like I just, yeah the pessimist side of me is thinking that there's another hunter up there and um then i hear another one in like the opposite direction i'm like all right are these really elk like is this really happening right now it's the first day of the season it's not even light out and i'm literally surrounded by elk so uh needless to say i didn't really take my time um getting ready that morning. I mean, I still made myself coffee and everything, but I was, uh, had bow in hand and ready to start moving, uh, once it was light enough to see. 
And um, I, I don't think I walked 15 yards from where my tent was at. And I heard some timber break and kind of over like this blind crest. And, uh, you know, so right away my adrenaline's pumping. I'm thinking, okay, there's an elk right there. Like what's, what do I do now? And that's when all the ideas started racing through my head and trying to, you know, pull information from all the things I've listened to and read in the past of what would be the, the proper protocol right now. You know, do I, do I go in silently? Do I call? Do I cow call? Do I bugle? You know, what do I do now? And I kind of just tried a little bit of everything, I guess. Um, I started with a cow call, no response. Um, cow called a couple times I tried to get like to this this crest where I could see down to where the sound had come from and uh didn't didn't get any response didn't hear anything else um so as I'm focusing on that I hear a bull bugle kind of like if I'm facing this sound that I was going after like kind of back behind my right shoulder and uh so i'm like all right well forget this one that's being silent you know chances are that's just a cow anyway i'm gonna go to what's bugling so i'm i follow this elk trail kind of going basically directly into the wind so the wind's in my favor uh, maybe coming a little bit quartering over me dropping all the thermals are still dropping down the hill and like i said i'm only a hundred feet maybe from, from the, the ridge here. And, uh, so I, I follow this, this trail and, you know, I'm, I almost have tunnel vision, not that I'm not seeing my surroundings, but I'm focused on where this, this bugle came from. And I'm going at a pretty good clip cause I want to close the distance. You know, I'm thinking I want to get to that hundred yard area of, you know, set up and, and start calling. And, within man i don't even know 150 200 yards i'm coming up on a meadow that's on this slope that i didn't even really know was there i mean there's a bunch of really tiny meadows all over this hill but um i didn't realize that i was coming up on this and i just see a set of, of antlers like skylined on this meadow and then i see another set and i'm like uh, okay the elk are right here like all right what do i do now you know and i yeah um so i kind of like i if another two seconds i would have been running out into this meadow with all the elk so i i quick put on the brakes you know step back some and i'm like thinking they had to have seen me you know i'm used to hunting whitetails and it's a totally different animal i mean they would all have been out of that meadow at this point mm-hmm. but none of them were had any idea that i was there um so i back up i'm maybe 30 40 yards off the edge of this meadow and i'm you know running through in my head the scenario what different options are so i quick drop down slope off of this trail that i'm on again it's an elk trail and uh drop maybe 15 yards off the trail so I'm still maybe 40, 50 yards off the edge of this meadow, put a big blow down tree behind me as a backdrop. And I'm getting ready to 
to think about what calling sequence I'm going to do here. And I'm watching all these elk just dogging each other in this meadow, kind of like completely blown away of, of, about what's going on, how many elk are there, you know, still questioning the reality of all this, I guess. And uh, I hear something running kind of behind me over my right shoulder from the area that I had just come in from. And I didn't even think about it. I just drew my bear back. And before I knew it, there's a five point bull like hauling butt past me to run out into this meadow. And uh, I just let out a cow call. I had my diaphragm in my mouth. He stopped perfect broadside. Um, turned out to be 25 yards away, but I shot with my 20 yard pin. Um, all I knew was he was close. I wouldn't have had time to range. Like I said, I already had my bow drawn back before I even saw him. And uh, as soon as I released, the doubt just started filling my head. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, I just blew that shot. I just hit him low. I hit him in the brisket. Um, you know, that's not a dead elk. And I'm like, I might as well just shoot one of these other bulls that's running around because he's, he's good as live, you know. And uh, I've had a couple bad experiences over the past few years. I wounded four deer, um, which I, that hasn't happened in my whole history of hunting, but in the last like five years, I wounded four deer. So I kind of, every time I'm hunting with my bow now, I have that like self doubt in the back of my head for some reason. Um, and that, like I said, that took over. I'm like, I just blew that shot. How can I blow a shot at such a big animal at such close range, you know? Mm -hmm. And but uh, that was like, that's all feeling slash doubt. Like you didn't see impact. Or oh, I, I saw the impact and I thought for sure that I hit low. Like I could have. Oh, really? Like, okay. I was like, I just hit him in the brisket. And I, I guess it was just the angle that I was standing on, why it looked like that, um, because he was uphill of me. Mm. Um, so I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta calm my nerves down here. I'm, it, oh, I'm, I'm thinking I'm just going to shoot one of these other bulls. Cause that one's, that one's alive. And then I'm like, no, don't be an idiot. You're not shooting enough. <laughs> That's not, not legal. <laughs> yeah. You're not shooting another elk till you do your due diligence and go make sure that one's not dead. It is and funny. Like only, in the, in the heat of the moment, you can have very irrational thoughts. Yeah, you know? ex exactly. So, um, I'm like, it's, it's the first 45 minutes of the first day of the season. Um, you have plenty of time to, to figure this out and, and go get another elk if need be. Um, so I just, I sit down right there, take my pack off, you know, let my nerves calm down a little bit. And, um, I, I decided I'm going to give it at least a half an hour, maybe an hour before I, I even walk to look for blood. So I got my phone out. Um, I have in reach and uh, sent a couple text messages. And, um, you know, the text messages were like, yeah, I just blew it on my first bull or something like that. You know, again, completely doubting myself and uh, sat there for maybe 20 minutes or something. And, um, decided I can at least go look for the arrow. Uh, oh, stepping back a minute, I saw him run after I shot him, run out into the meadow, and there were so many elk and bulls in that meadow that 
as soon as he got in there with the rest of them, I couldn't tell which one was mine. So I'm like trying to scan, look at each one, look, look for, you know, any blood on any of them. I couldn't tell. I didn't see any, any sign of any of them being hit. Um, but there were probably at least eight bulls in that meadow at that given time when he ran out there. And then as I'm sitting there sending text messages, maybe another four to six bulls came through the meadow. Two more came in the same way he did. And one stopped like 15 yards away from me and stood there. Um, a couple cows. So it was, I mean, it was absolutely, it was insane. And a couple of them, the first ones that I saw when I was first approaching that meadow were big bulls. Um, so I don't know, you know, I'm still trying to make sense of it. It was, it was so early in the season, you know, there shouldn't have been any cows and estrus, but the way they were acting, like just from my experience hunting whitetails, like it seemed like there was at least one cow and estrus there and the scent was in the air and all the bulls were, you know, going crazy because it was probably the first one to come in, uh, the season, um, I mean, that's what it seemed to me. I don't know if that's the case or not, but they were definitely acting like rutting, rutting deer, you know, with a hot doe in, yeah. in the area. Um, but anyway, so I went, I find my arrow and it's covered with long blood. And uh, it, I mean, it was easy to find. It was just laying there on the ground. It was a full pass through late at the base of this tree. So I'm looking at my arrow and I'm like, all right, well, I at least caught one long. And uh, so then I just sat there for like another 15 minutes. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start, start trailing this. And I saw exactly where he ran to like in the center of the field before I lost him with the, the rest of the pools. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I would have rushed right over to that spot and tried looking for blood there. And, you know, probably end up wasting a lot of time, but, um, I kind of made the, the conscious decision right away that I'm going to follow this blood trail from the beginning right here at the arrow and, uh, not get ahead of myself. And that's what I did. And it, he didn't bleed much at all. And, uh, I used flagging tape and tied a piece of tape at every single blood spot that I found, um, going across that meadow there. And uh, it took me maybe a half an hour probably because there was not much blood until I got to the other side of that meadow and I look up and there he was laying piled up at the base of this big, uh, I guess it was a fir tree. And uh, man, it was, it was almost like disbelief. Like I, I didn't really get that overwhelming enthusiasm like I normally do when I walk up on an animal it was like this really just happened like it's <laughs> it's reality now you know mm -hmm. it turned out to be a, a perfect shot like I said he was he was uphill of me so I hit him um low in the in the onside lung through the heart and then like came out mid went up. mid opposite lung um so, yeah, I mean, it was it couldn't have been a better, better shot if I actually thought about the shot or thought about my process. Like I told myself for the last two years going into this, like I'm not going to put all this time and effort and money into going out west just to blow a shot. You know, like, yeah, 
take go through your shot process to, like you do at the target you know don't rush a shot and that's what i'm telling myself for the last two years man i can't remember what i did <laughs> once i put that sight on him i don't even remember putting my sight on him yeah well and especially like in that context like it happened a it's opening morning you haven't even like had a chance to call it like have a counter get your feet wet he you're looking at elk in one direction he shows up in another direction like it couldn't happen in a different context to make it more of like a sudden thing right like that's crazy yeah it, it it's i mean just talking about it again i still am in such disbelief that it all went down like that you know i'd like yeah. to say yeah i'm a great elk hunter i i really uh you know, earn that one. And I mean, obviously I earned it. I, there was a lot going into this hunt, uh, beforehand, but man, I never, other than there's a couple screechy calls that I let out trying to call that first, you know, broke breaking timber that I heard. Um, you know, I never even really got to call. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. you can never take away from hunting. Like yes, knowledge and skill and all these things matter, but in the end, it, there's always that factor of being at the right place at the right time. And some of that comes down to scouting and knowledge and skill being at the right place at the right time. And some of that just, it's an opportunity that happens. It presents itself. So it's always both, you know? Yeah, definitely. So being a, being a whitetail guy and now standing over an elk and being solo, um, that had to be uh, a bit intimidating just on based on size and knowing you, where you're at and all that. You know what? It wasn't, it wasn't intimidating at all, actually, until really? until I had that first pack of meat on my back. <laughs> okay. Then it was a little intimidating. But I mean, I've butchered so many deer. You know, I've never taken deer to a processor. Even when I was a kid, I was butchering my own deer. Um, so like that part wasn't it's just a bigger deer. Um there I, I quickly learned that you're not rolling an elk over by yourself um, <laughs> unless if it's on a slope that you can flip it down slope and then chances are it'll just keep on going. Um, but this, the way he landed his, his uh, spine was like wedged against his a giant fir tree. I, I think it was a fir um, and his, his legs were pointing uphill. So his, his legs were preventing me from, trying to move him uphill the tree was preventing from going downhill um i mean it, it turned out to be a pretty good location for butchering it was just kind of hard to uh to get him turned um to get that offside you know once i had the the upside all deboned and everything mm -hmm. um but yeah no it wasn't intimidating and i just you know i right away i kind of told myself i'm gonna take my time you know it's uh it was super cold though the previous day and I, I didn't really look at the weather to see what the temps were, but I thought that, you know, I didn't even think I was going to have to worry about flies or anything. Um, so I just, you know, got my kill kit out, got everything prepped. I, uh, laid out my, I use a, what the heck do they call that? Uh, poly, poly yeah. or whatever, uh, yeah, ground yeah. So I laid that out. I figured I'd, you know, lay the quarters on there and stuff before I deboned them. Um, I have bone out meat bags, so I didn't have, you know, the option of taking whole quarters out if I wanted them in game bags. Um, 
so yeah, I got, you know, got the whole area prepped and everything and, um, just, just went at it, started from there. I learned that it's really hard to keep a, a skin quarter hind quarter from hitting the, the, the ground when you're cutting that back ball joint. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I mean, every, everything went pretty smooth until it started warming up and I was doing, uh, the second half of them, um, the flies started coming out and, you know, you always, or at least I always heard, you know, blow flies, like it, they're the worst thing in the world. They're going to be blowing eggs in your meat as soon as they hit it. So I was kind of concerned about that. Um, so I tried to like keep everything covered as, as much as possible while I was still working on the animal, this, the skin quarters that were laying on the, the plastic there. I tried to, you know, fold the plastic over and everything to keep the flies off of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I've done, I've done so many deer. It was just second nature. Um, just a, a bigger deer. One thing I will say for, for listeners that, have never done, um, you know, even the gutless method or whether you're quartering it or whatever you're going to do. If, if you're a deer hunter, practice on your deer at home. Um, last year I did two deer a mile from the road. Uh, you know, I could have drug them a mile, I guess, but I was like, there's no better practice for getting ready for doing this thing out in the mountains, you know, um, just a smaller elk you know it's a lot quicker with a deer but it's also a good way to learn especially if you're by yourself it's a lot more manageable and kind of perfect your process as far as uh you know order of order of things and the best way to do it um so anyway yeah it it ended up taking me probably i think it was like four hours till i had all the meat off the bone and in bags and, uh, but I mean, I, I picked that thing clean. <laughs> right. No, uh, I mean, that sounds right. Especially being solo for sure. And taking your time, doing it safe. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what was I, your, what was your plan strategy for then shuttling me? Like, again, like breaking down an elk solo, getting them out of there. I'm not sure exactly how deep you are, but I know it's numerous miles at this point. Like that's, that's no small feat. What did you what was the strategy behind taking care of that? So at this point, it's, I don't know, shortly afternoon, maybe one, two o'clock. Um, oh, I, after I got everything in bags, I took the time to eat lunch because I was starting to get a little worn out. Um, you know, I didn't really, I think I ate a Belvedo cookie or something that morning because my adrenaline was going you know, as soon as I woke up that morning, so I didn't really have an appetite, but at this point I was starting to get a little hungry. Um, so I ate lunch, sat there looking at on X, figuring the best way to deal with this. Um, at this point I'm like over, over five and a quarter miles from my truck and, you know, by myself, I have an undetermined amount of meat here and, uh, camp, antlers cape i decided i was taking the cape out just in case i felt like spending the money to get the thing mounted it being my first elk and all um and so i i decided i'm gonna hike straight up over the ridge drop not straight down um 
on an angle down the slope uh, to this ATV trail that's just under a mile from where I was sitting at. Mm. And uh, I decided I'm going to shuttle all the meat down there, stage it somewhere near the ATV trail, and then in the morning start shuttling the meat back to my truck. Um, I picked a spot, you know, just going off on X that looked like it would make the most sense. And uh, from there, it was like another four, just over four and a quarter miles to my truck. So I wanted to have all the meat down there that by that night um, and be ready to start taking trips to my truck in the morning. Um, it was uh, only maybe a 200 foot elevation gain up to get up and then start dropping down from the ridge. And then it was all downhill, maybe like, I don't know, 600 or 800 feet or so. Um, so the elevation and terrain, uh, that aspect of the terrain wasn't terrible, but there was a ton of blowdown up there and, uh, or deadfall, whatever you want to call it. And, um, so that, that was my plan was to get all the meat down by the ATV, the ATV trail, and then hike that ATV trail due South to a hiking trail that cut over to where my truck was parked at. Um, so it wasn't until I strapped that first, uh, going back a little bit, I, like going into this hunt, I did a, or this hunt and last year's hunt, I've done a lot of weighted hiking, um, usually with 65 pounds on my back. And I feel like I could walk with 65 pounds on my back all day long. Like it doesn't, you know, I'm so used to it. Throwing that extra weight on my back, I think, think that first load I took was probably right around a hundred. I'm guessing I took a, a hind quarter, a front quarter and my camp, um, that the first load down to the ATV trail. And like I said, as soon as I went to stand up with that, that's when I realized that I had my work set out for me. <laughs> um, and you know, I hear you guys talking all the time about hundred plus pound packs and stuff. And, Man, I, I don't know if it's if it's my frame, my I don't know, but getting getting up there in that weight, it's it's a it's a game changer for sure. Um, you know, I'm only five foot eight, I weigh 150 pounds. Um, so I don't know if just that, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, load, load to two thirds of your body weight, yeah. Two off or what, but um yeah, just having that extra say 30 pounds on my back felt like an extra hundred pounds on my back compared to what I would normally train with. Right. Um, well, and in that terrain too, um, you know, and then at elevation, we're not fully acclimated. I mean, there's, there's multiple factors that could go into it for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's one uh, tip for your listeners is if, if you plan on carrying 80, a hundred, 120 pounds for a pack out, try doing it at home and doing it up a hill or two and, you know, make sure that you're capable before you can commit to that. Right. I'm not saying I wasn't capable because I did it, but it was, it felt sketchy. And, you know, I had two trekking poles, um, without trekking poles, I definitely would have fell more than once. Um, luckily I didn't fall at all, 
But uh, so I took took the whole bull, the uh, the head, the cape, camp, bow, everything I had up there uh, in three trips down to this ATV trail, and it took me. It was it was after dark by the time I set up my or no I set up my tent after the first trip down just because I knew I wasn't going to want to do it at, after dark, um, and it got washed up and everything. I ended up making camp by this beaver pond down there, uh, but yeah, it was I don't know a five hour process or something just moving three trips of of meat. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, was, I mean freaking a bowl with camp. And then, as you said, the skull and antlers and a cape in three trips. That's that's a lot of work, man. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I got got it all staged down there and I'm laying in in bed trying to sleep and I sleep terrible in uh, in a tent. I just I can't sleep on my back. If I could just convince myself to sleep on my back, I think I could sleep anywhere. But I'm a side sleeper and, um, you know, that comes with with complications having your shoulders sticking through the pad into the ground and everything yeah um, yeah you mentioned to me prior you did some sort you found some sort of like little workaround trick um that helped you sleep what was that with your i think it was either with your pad or your pillow or both oh yeah yeah and maybe this is common knowledge and i forget where i picked this up at i either heard it or read it somewhere but um so i use a therm rest uh I forget what it's called, the ultralight, uh, the orange crinkly one mm-hmm. it weighs like 12 ounces. And it's, it's just a really slick material. And then you lay that on, you know, the smooth side of your sill nylon floor of the tent, and it's always sliding around. And then my pillow, um, the side, like there's a, a felt side that goes against your head. And then the other side's really slick and slippery. So everything's always sliding around and shuffling at night. And again, if I slept on my back and stayed still like a normal person, it wouldn't be an issue, but I'm always tossing and turning. So everything is always sliding everywhere. I just took um, a tube of silicone and maybe like every six inches ran a horizontal strip across the bottom of my pad and just smeared it out with my finger um, and did the same thing on the back of my pillow. I just did like an X on the back of my pillow and man, everything stays put perfectly. Now it's, it just got that, that feeling of silicone, like, you know, the stickier side, the underside of your uh, fly on your tent or whatever, it just yep. has that, that grippy feeling to it. And, uh, doesn't add any weight. It still packs just the same, but man, it stays put. Nothing slides around them. Yeah, no, that's a good tip. I've done that in the past or even it, since you just mentioned like the seam of your fly, your tent, if you ever, um, like doing a tent or fly or tarp, whatever you, where you manually seam seal it, you can take any leftover seam sealer and do the same thing like on the floor of it and just create dots or like you said, lines. And it creates just that little bit of grippiness. It can make a big difference, especially if you, you know, if you're hunting with camp on your back, you don't always find the perfect spot. You know, you don't always have the best flattest um, spot for your tent. So you get on a little bit of a slope and find yourself migrating through the night. That grippiness can also kind of help keep you in place if you don't have a perfectly level spot. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm pretty sure I heard that or read it on a forum like years ago and kind of just brushed it off, you know, and I, I just woke up in the corner of my tent with my pillow in the opposite corner of the tent <laughs> one too many times, you know, and going into this hunt, I finally decided I was going to do it. And 
um, it, it definitely, it made a big difference for me. I mean, I still slept like crap, but at least I wasn't sliding, you know, sliding around so much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, Oh yeah. Laying in my tent that night, I'm thinking, man, if somebody comes by here on an ATV, uh, in the morning, you know, I'm thinking they're going to, there's probably going to be people driving before light, you know, going out to wherever they're going to hunt at and stuff. I was like, I'm going to see if somebody's nice enough to run my meat up to the road for me. Now the ATV trail didn't go to where my truck was, went in the opposite direction, but I figured I could at least get the meat to the road. I'd hike back to my truck and then loop around and pick it up. Right. Um, but nobody passed, you know, that, that night or that morning or whatever. And uh, I got up really early cause I couldn't sleep. And I was like, I might as well just start, start carrying this. Um, so I, I decided I was going to do four trips, um, you know, a little bit lighter of loads. And uh, I, I forget what it was going to turn out to be like. You said you said four trips, but I think you said earlier it was like four miles, right, to the truck? Yeah, it was over four miles. So it was going to be, I think it was going to be 18 miles of weighted, you know, loaded trips. And then another 16 miles, you know, to get back, to get of, back yeah. of light trip. So over 30 miles, um, I, I figured I was going to give myself two days to get it done. And um, so I got to it that morning, second day of the season, I'm carrying, I don't know, 60, 60 pounds or something. I left my camp there. I figured I was going to, chances are I'd be getting back there after the second load you know, get right. close to the dark. So I would just sleep there. Um, so I just took, I just had meat on my back and my, maybe my bow. I don't remember something. I didn't, yeah, I think it was my bow. I didn't want to leave in the, in the woods. Um, so I'm hiking, I get a half a mile from where I was camped at heading on the ATV trail back towards the trail that cuts my truck. And there's a wall tent there. I don't know, 80 yards off the trail or something. And as I get closer and closer, I see three, three, four wheelers parked there. And I'm like, Oh man, if, if, if they do rentals, <laughs> if, if there's somebody at this tent, I'm going to have to try to take the easy way out of this. Yeah. And, uh, as I get closer, I hear, Hey, how's it going? And I'm like, Oh boy. And I'm, I said, oh, it's going pretty good. I just, I got my work cut out for me here. And he's like, oh, really? And I don't know how they didn't notice the uh, two meat bags that I had on my back. But um, they, uh, he was like, oh, what do you got going on? I said, oh, I'm just hiking back to my truck, you know. And I said, hey, you feel like making a hundred bucks? And he's like, come again. I said, why don't you rent me one of your quads for two hours? I said, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And he's like, oh, sorry, I can't do that. And I, at this point, he still didn't realize that I had meat on my back or what I was even talking about. And um, and I forget what else he said. He was just kind of striking up small talk. And I was like, yeah, I killed a bull yesterday. And this is my first trip back to my truck. I said, um, my truck's parked that way. I said, I know the trailhead is that way. Uh, the parking area and everything. I said, I give you some cash. If you let me, uh, just use your, your quad for two hours, just to run, run the meat back. I'll come back, park it here. I said, and then I'll hike back to my truck. 
He's like, oh, I can't do that. We need the quads. And here it turns out him and his, it was his nephew was with him. They both shot bulls like basically at the exact same time I did. Wow. And, um, but on the opposite side of the ridge and the one they recovered right away, the other one they couldn't find and they were going out to look for it again that morning. And, um, last I heard, they never found it. Uh, and it was supposedly a, a monster of a bull, but, um, so they, they wanted their quads to, to drive the four miles or whatever to wherever that bull was to, to go look for it that day. And he said, I'll tell you what, he says, if, if, uh, if you stop back around one o'clock, he said, we'll be back by then. And, uh, he said, I'll run you and your meat out. I said, nah, you don't have to do that, man. I, I didn't want to inconvenience that afternoon. He was saying, yeah, yeah. That afternoon. And uh, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to take time out of your hunting day or whatever. I just figured if your bikes were going to be sitting here, um, you know, I would, I would use one if it wasn't going to inconvenience you. But he said, no, he said, we don't really hunt after, whatever he said 10 11 o'clock or something anyway we'll just be back here hanging out and he said really i don't mind i said well i'm not going to turn down that offer i said it's either two grueling days of of packing or uh or this so i said yeah i'll take you up on that um so i ended up just dumping the two meat bags at their camp there hiked the four and a half mile from his his camp it was like four miles back to my truck um looped around it was like an hour and a half drive of course you know there's no straight roads in colorado yeah Um, like an hour and a half drive to get around to the atv trailhead and then uh it was like a six and a half seven mile hike back into his camp um so i did that got back in in there right around one o'clock and uh they, they got back just right around the same time I did. And um, they were nice enough to feed me fresh burgers. They grilled some burgers up. And not that I was that long without uh, civilized food at that point, but <laughs> it was still nice having a burger. And uh, got to talking to the guy. He had been hunting that same unit for 42 years at this point. Knew it like the back of his hand. And uh, got a good bit of insight from him. And, yeah, he took – took me and my meat out to the truck and definitely saved me quite a few miles. Um, you know, I was prepared to do it, but yeah, at the same time, you're not, not going to turn down an offer like that. No, man, that 30 plus miles of shuttling back and forth would have been, uh, would have been a test for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, in hindsight, you know, I, I kind of wish I would have just done it just so that like, I, tested my abilities and everything but um you know someday when there's not somebody there to bail me out then i'll exactly I'll get the <laughs> yeah yeah worry about it then yeah <laughs> man so that's wild um i know guys especially in you know your situation coming from out east and things like that like questions always come up and on meat care not only getting it back to the truck but even okay well now i did get it back to the truck uh, regardless of how that happened or when that happened but what did it look like for you to then get it home to uh, pennsylvania days later um, what did you have coolers what size of coolers did you dry ice regular ice did you get it processed in town and hang out like what did, what did all the logistics involve from you're at your truck at the trailhead to then getting home all right so 
back to I was planning on breaking this this trip up into two hunts, and I was even actually tossing around the idea of buying a leftover mule deer tag and focusing on mule deer for the first half of my trip and then doing elk the second half. And I just assumed, you know, I'd heard on different podcasts, heard on different forums, you know, take your meat to town, drop it off at a cold storage locker, drop it off at a processor and, you know, get it frozen. So I just, this is like the one thing that I assumed everything else I had, had an order, you know, T's crossed, I's dotted, except I assumed that it'd be easy to find a place to drop meat off. Now I do all my own meat. Nobody else is cutting up my meat. So that wasn't an option. I just wanted somewhere to keep it cold. Um, so, you know, I had, I, I assumed that I was going to be doing that either with a mule deer or with an elk. You know, if you're hunting with a partner and one of, one of you tags out early, you're going to have to do something with your meat. You're not just going to bail on your partner because you have, you know, you need to drive home with your meat. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to look more into that, uh, for future hunts if I'm hunting with somebody else, but, um, the real stress and the stress factor kicked in once I had the meat in the back of my truck, you know, I didn't have ice with me. Um, it's funny last year I froze probably about 200 pounds of block ice, um, pre hunt for our trip last year and was literally dumping out probably 20, 30 pound blocks of ice after two weeks of hunting that were still in my coolers um, that lasted all that time. And this year going into it a little bit more pessimistic, I was like, I'm not bothering taking ice, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I did have, I had a 150 quart and 120 quart cooler. And then I had a smaller, like your standard, uh, like picnic size Coleman cooler that I had just used that to store stuff in. And I kind of had that in one of the bigger coolers. Um, but uh, so I put, put the meat bags just in the back of my truck and I, I should have put them in the cooler cause it had gotten so cold the night before the core temp did drop a good bit. Um, but I actually just laid them on a, uh, on like a blanket in the back of my truck and it was like an hour and a half drive from where I was at. And it, of course it was crazy hot that day. I think it was, it wasn't quite this hot up in the mountains, but like, as I started driving back towards town, my truck was saying it was 97 degrees outside tent. Um, so I had five meat bags sitting in the bed of my truck in 97 degree weather. Uh, so it took like an hour and a half to get to town and at that point, I just wanted to, to kind of to get them in the cooler and drop the temp a little bit more or stabilize the temp. And then I thought I was going to be taking the meat somewhere and drop it off to keep keep cold. I have a friend that lives in Denver and I figured I'm in Colorado, you know, I'm tagged out way earlier than what I thought. I'll go hang out with him for a couple of days and, uh, you know, have my meat in a in a cold in a cooler somewhere. So got ice at once I got into town, I really didn't want to put wet ice on that meat. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to freeze it necessarily. So I didn't want to put dry ice on it. So I just kind of like 
draped a trash bag over the top of it, threw a couple bags of wet ice on it, and uh, started making some phone calls trying to find a meat processor that would let me store my meat for four or five days until I was ready to drive home and was unsuccessful on that. Uh, I'm calling areas or uh, processors like in the Denver area because that's where I was headed. I didn't want to have to drive back west to pick my pick my meat up to drive back home. Um, so maybe there were maybe in some of the smaller towns I would have been more successful. Uh, but I quickly learned um, between that evening and the next day of making a ton of phone calls, emails, driving around that nobody out there, at least around the Denver area, is willing to store your meat unless you're letting them process your animal, mm. um, which I wasn't going to do. So I, I got, I had it on wet ice um, or had wet ice on the meat. And then, so that was, I guess, Thursday, I got out into town, did that. Um, it was like Thursday evening by the time I got into town. So there were, there weren't really any places open, um, any processors other than like one I talked to. And then a lot of them had like voicemails set up, I guess, during the hunting season, they don't want to be answering phone calls all day. Um, so they kind of were directing you to their website and email and everything. So I sent out some emails and didn't get any responses. Uh, so the next morning I just made my way to Denver and started stopping at these processors that weren't answering their phone, um, that were like in the general Denver area and was getting the same response from everybody. Sorry, we're not going to do it. You know, we'll process your meat and we'll freeze it for you. Um, but that, that was the best I could get. One place offered, all I wanted to do was put my coolers in somebody's walk-in and keep the meat cold while I hung out in Denver. Mm -hmm. and, uh, one place would do that, but they wanted $50 a day to do it. Um, so oh, going back a little bit, at this point, I'm still tossing around the idea of leaving my truck in Denver, flying home, and then coming back out and hunting with this guy that I met on Rock Slide. I didn't really want to leave him high and dry. Um, but at a minimum, I was going to stay a few days to see my friend that lives in Denver. So it's either, you know, spend 200 bucks to keep my coolers in a walk-in for four days while I'm in Denver, or, you know, spend 500 to leave it there until the end of the month, or would have been a lot more than that rather. Um, so I, I quickly determined that the best bet was just to buy a bunch of dry ice, freeze it in the meat bags and the coolers. And uh, that's what I ended up doing. Um, with the dry ice, essentially, uh, you just put some sort of insulating layer on top of the meat, whether it be, I use paper shopping bags, but can use cardboard, whatever, and then just lay the blocks of dry ice on top of it. And it, essentially it's freezing everything that's below it. And, uh, I think I went through, I think it was about 70 pounds of dry ice in four or five days. Um, which, you know, that has its expense too, but you got to do what you got to do to keep your, your meat from spoiling. Yeah. But that was definitely the most stressful aspect of this whole trip was uh, the whole trying to figure out what I was going to do with my meat. And I, I won't be going into another out of state trip like that again. I'll, 
I'll definitely have have a game plan. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's good. It's good for guys to hear to to know what works, what what you did, what issues you ran into, and like you just said, to just at least help create that plan because it is uh, it's obviously beneficial to have that ahead of time because as you just said, it's super stressful when you're trying to figure that out on the go. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I, I still don't know what, what would be the best, I guess you like for me, you know, I'm anal about handling my own meat and trimming it the way I want it done and cutting it how I want it done. Um, and that's another thing, all the processors that I talk to, all they'll do with, with deboned meat is grind it. They're not going to cut. Really? Yeah. They, they, uh, and a lot of them charge more for deboned because I guess typically when they're, when they're dealing with boned out meat, it's dirtier. Um, you know, there might be a lot more trimming because there might be more dried edges. There's just more surface area. Yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't run into any of that. I mean, like I said, I ended up putting wet ice on it. So it all got wet in that, you know, that, third day or whatever and then i froze it from there so when i let it fall out a week well it wasn't a week maybe six days later or something when i got home um and i it was thawed out and i started actually breaking it down there wasn't any waste from from surface area drying out or anything like that um it definitely wasn't the meat didn't had the same surface uh texture that i'm used to because it had gotten wet there but man it, it tastes the same um there i have no regrets about doing it that way in hindsight you know getting that wet ice on it initially to get it cooled down mm-hmm. but um yeah i don't know like if if you're going out with a friend for two weeks and somebody tags out on the first day if you don't have a place that's going to store your meat you know and keep it cold you're just going to have to to bite the bullet and let somebody process it yeah well and i would this might be harder to figure out ahead of time but i would even tell guys to think outside this box especially if you're not in denver and in town i think the chances of you being you know further out more uh rural and running into just call it nice folks of like i would even think outside the box if you are like looking on the go of even freaking go to a the local grocery store or what have you and just see if you can pay them to use cold storage like you know yes a meat processor and i understand why they do it they're generally going to want you to use their services i think you can find some potentially who will let you just use cold space but you know think outside the box on where you can even get cold space like i said maybe even a a grocery store or something like that where you can like hey can i put these coolers in here you know for the next week or whatever and give you a hundred bucks or you know whatever like at least look into that like i said that one might be harder to figure out in advance though i thought about that too i I don't know what you know i'm sure there's probably some fda regulations as far as like you know having wild game meat and i don't i don't know if that's an issue or not but I, i did think about that um i didn't go that far because i just quickly scratched the plan of leaving my meat there for three weeks and flying back out. Um, You know, besides the expense, it was also kind of hard to justify leaving my, my family for another two weeks while I come help some guy hunt that I never met before. Yeah. Uh, So, but no, there's, there's definitely uh, some learning to, to come from that, Uh, you know, in the future, I'll be putting a lot more thought in the, and what's going on with the meat 
before I head out on a hunt. All right. Man, well, appreciate you sharing the the story of the hunt and everything after and uh, all the background. We could talk all day, I'm sure, but, you know, spent an hour plus here and heard some great stuff and a lot of things that guys can both relate to, um, you know, and learn from. There's more and more guys trying to do what you're doing or have done now in terms of uh, coming from out of state and making these types of hunts happen. And it's, you know, it's not like encouraging to uh, hear the lessons learned, but just even your story and how quick it happened. Like that's a good reminder that things can change in the Elk Woods at any instant. Um, you know, it's a perfect example of that in your story. So I appreciate you sharing it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you can only do so much, right. But there's, there's always that aspect of luck and it only takes us a second. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, uh, hopefully somebody learned something, you know, I've been listening to your podcast for, I don't know, a year. I never even knew what a podcast was until I started looking into elk hunting and, um, yeah, I, I think I've listened to almost every episode that you guys put out other than some of the rifle specific ones. But, um, yeah, if, if anybody gained any knowledge from anything I had to say, then I feel like it was worth my time being on here and giving back. <laughs> well, there you have it, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have anything for us, please send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. And again, we appreciate you taking the time to tune in and share this podcast with a friend. We'll talk to you soon.